Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Ian sits down with Jonathan Reichenthal, Chief Information Officer with the City of Palo Alto. In this conversation, Jonathan shares with Ian his thoughts on blockchain enterprises, the current evolution of IT organizations, and why programming is the discipline we need in the 21st century. Enjoy. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. The Lightning Platform is a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone is empowered to build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. Today we have in studio in Palo Alto, which is very interesting because it's the CIO of Palo Alto. Jonathan, how's it going? It's going great. I'm, I'm so glad to be here in this beautiful studio you guys have built. Thanks. I appreciate it. We have some really exciting stuff to talk about today. Jonathan is a technology leader with over 30 years in IT and was named one of the top 100 CIOs in the world. And he has a ton of insights, both on the private sector and now in the public sector with the city of Palo Alto. Let's get into it with where did you get your start in IT? Yeah. Well, I'm an IT guy the whole way. I got to say, and I, I've probably said this many times, my brother loves to hear it, is uh, he influenced me the most. You know, I'm a kid. Uh, he's my older brother. He brings home a, a VIC-20, a Commodore VIC-20. Do you remember that? Is that before your time? Okay. <laughs> Commodore was, it was a big deal in the personal computer space before the PC was something, right? And uh, we're talking here probably early 80s, actually. And yeah, I, I watched him programming. I watched him playing games and programming. Of course, I played the games, but I picked it up. I, I wish I'd really got deep into the programming side because you know I, I often regret that I'm not a great developer today. I can do some code, but you know beyond uh, reading and mathematics and the, the core things, uh, programming now seems to be another discipline that we probably all need in the 21st century. So, you know, I was hooked from a very young age and I wrote a, a small software program, which somebody purchased. <laughs> and by the way, I'll tell you right now, it was $150 I got from it. The equivalent oh. of $150. Nothing like that the millions kids get today for spinning up games, you know, uh, and having big IT companies here in Silicon Valley purchase them. But $150 back in the early 80s for a guy like me was game changing. So I guess I was, I was in. And uh, whilst I've done a lot of neat things in my life, you know, been very active in the mu music industry, teaching and all sorts of other things. Technology, technology leadership has been the sort of current, there's been the uh, very consistent thread for closing in now 30 years, although I can't believe I'm saying that. And so my start was my brother. We actually, in fact, had a, a small consulting company together for a few years. I was born in Ireland. So this all happened over in Dublin, Ireland. And then I emigrated. I came to the U.S. with a, a suitcase and one suit and got hired by Coopers and Librand uh, in a technology role. We merged with Pricewaterhouse, became Pricewaterhouse Coopers, and I stayed there for almost 15 years. Incredible, incredible journey and amazing business. And the last few years of my time at PwC, I was the head of technology innovation. And... Yeah, I had the opportunity to create this from nothing. I mean, the, the, this was not well-defined, but it was, an, it was a role that our U.S. and global CIO wanted to, to see 
developed and and I had the chance to to kind of invent that role and just was a great experience to be able to not only figure out ways in which we could deploy more innovation into the organization across the US and and sometimes even globally but also help our clients you know think about the future and the impacts of new tech on their business models so every two weeks I got paid and I was like, whoa, I get paid for this? This is yeah. cool. You know, that, that I want everybody to have that experience where, you know, you do a job and then knowing that you're getting paid for it too is like the, the greatest, the most exciting thing because it seems like you're, you're, you're getting paid for your hobby, right? We always talk about that at the mission. Every time we have an all hands calls, like, man, I can't believe we get to do this. This yeah. is great. Yeah. You know, I mean, what... What would you What would you rather be doing? But no, I I totally agree. Right, right. Well, I'll I'll uh, anyway uh, to kind of conclude here. Yeah, I mean, from Pricewaterhouse Coopers over in Florida, uh, they had their tech center in in Tampa Bay. I uh, left and came over to Silicon Valley, due to much encouragement to immerse myself here. I uh, worked for Tim O'Reilly at O'Reilly Media, and then I got the call to work for a city, which was a big surprise, and 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 that takes me sort of to today. Let's kind of go into just kind of some broad strokes over like what you've seen from IT changing because I think one of the one of the really interesting things why we're so excited to have you on the show first and foremost because you're a fellow podcaster mm-hmm. so everyone should check out drinking wine talking tech which is super popular if you like IT visionaries you're going to like that but as a purveyor of media which is close to our heart here at the mission working with Tim O'Reilly and helping build O'Reilly Media is really fascinating because you got to see so many trends. And when you're at that intersection of tech and media, you see all of the stuff coming out kind of in that pre-education, you know, it's not quite getting to the schools yet. You're kind of the inter inter, uh, intermediary between that. Like, what were the things that you saw there that were changing just so rapidly from kind of those early days where you're looking at CIOs and their responsibilities to now? Well, I really enjoyed my time at O'Reilly Media because it was a time of great change in the media industry and continues. By the way, it's continuing to this day, as we all know, and you know more than most. You know, O'Reilly made, were very successful in producing high quality technology books, uh, running conferences, and they even had a at the time a small sort of tech school. And well, people were buying, starting to buy Kindles and e-readers. I mean, it was really happening fast, and it was quite disruptive. It's a very different model to to send a, a manuscript to a, a printing press and run a large printing job, then put books in boxes and ship them to bookstores. That's a very different business model than distributing digital content. And in so many different ways, and the pricing has to be different. And it's a transformation that lots of the, at least the book companies, had underway during the, well, it would have been the late 2000s into the early, uh, so 2010, 2011. Seems like things have potentially sort of stabilized a little bit. We're, we're more probably inclined to watch videos now on our smartphones than we are to download a book to an e-reader in terms of mass, mass appeal, although all of that is continues to be to be still popular. You know, around about the same time, you know, I think about what was, what were the big tech things happening back in sort of 2008, 2009? Social media was starting to take shape. My recollection was, you know, Twitter was becoming a thing. Google Plus was just announced around about then, I think about 2010, perhaps. And we see the end of that arc, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, Google Plus is, is over, at least on the consumer side. I mean, the story of social media is still being told. I don't know that we have any idea where it's headed, right? Yeah, I mean, and and I think personally, I mean, I, I think pretty much 
the broad strokes of it is like we pretty squarely got it wrong from the perspective that businesses thought we were going to be able to use it one way mm-hmm. and turns out that's not at all how we can use it um and i think that that is going to be the next shift from the business implications of that like hey we thought you build a facebook page hey and that's your page turns out you have to pay for that for <laughs> access to that audience every day and and i think that you know for cios and for it leaders you never thought that you were going to be involved in social media. Yeah. You know, you never thought that you you might not have thought that you would be involved in, you know, content creation or a lot of these things, you know, the movement we were just talking to the Box CIO about this and the CIO of of Unity about the same thing like moving terabytes mm-hmm. of information that that's something that you'd have to be able to collaborate in real time. And social media you're seeing kind of a lot of that stuff. What does the modern CIO look at that stuff and say, like, how do I deal with this? You yeah. Know? Well, it's kind of interesting that, you know, you said CIOs didn't think they'd have to kind of deal with this type of thing. There was a sort of in the last 10 years, there's been a kind of a war, if you like, a battle between the the chief communications officer, the chief marketing officer and the CIO CTO. I think it's starting to get resolved. But, you know, I think about the organizations I've been a part of, and I was the person who typically spun up the Twitter account and the Facebook account and the LinkedIn account. And Did you really? For the enterprise, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it was seen as technology. But then clearly the chief marketing officer said, well, hey, wait a minute, I need to own that and, and use that as the as the channels for the organization and has real value. And, you know, honestly, I haven't been, I've been okay with that saying, hey, yeah, I'd love to have you uh, assume oversight for this and it, it, ma- it makes a lot more sense. I think that's been an interesting phenomenon to be not only a part of, but to, to observe. And I think, you know, here, here's the interesting thing about the role of the CIO in sort of 2018. You know, we've been desperate to get on the on the C-suite and be part of the core leadership team of any organization. Gradually, the CIO has been invited, you know, and, and now as, as part of that executive team. And we, we had to typically learn some finance stuff, marketing, you know, some sales product stuff. You know, really become a business person. And so, you know, that was, you know, a lot of us started in tech and that's what we're, we're, we're great at. And then we were like, oh, kind of forced into understanding business too. But here's what's happened. Here's the transformation. Whilst that's what was happening over the last few years, what's happening now is when the CIO comes to the table, the CFO, the chief marketing officer, the chief, you know, the, the strategist, they all have to learn tech. They all have to learn technology now. So you become, as the CIO and CTO, a critical part of that team. It's no longer like begging to be, you know, can I be part of the club? It's more like you need to be at the table here because our business is absolutely dependent on technology. Our strategy is dependent on understanding how to better produce our products and services, how to continually evolve them because the market is changing so fast now. So it's kind of neat, you know, if the assumption is you're either listening to this podcast because you're interested in, you know, being an IT leader or you're, you are an IT leader and you're growing, you're just about uh, one of the most popular people <laughs> within your organization or becoming popular. And you might not know it yet. Yeah, yeah, you don't know it. And I'm actually, actually it can be intimidating because for a lot of IT leaders, they actually enjoy and have enjoyed being in the back office. I'll keep the data center running, you know, I'll make sure services are up every day. And suddenly they're being brought to the table and, and being asked, you know what, how do we replatform this product to be able to deliver on a global scale, you know, overnight? And so the the demands on the leadership of IT and his or her team 
have you know increased a lot. Yeah, one of the things that Paul Chapman, the CIO of Box, had said in a previous episode was that when he goes into meetings, he's not worried about them saying <laughs> the conversation isn't anymore or isn't at their company. Hey, you know, C-suite, I'm bringing this technology. I'd really like to implement this. And then they're saying, oh, well, you know, how much time, whatever. The question that he's getting now is, why haven't we done this already? <laughs> All right. And I, I think that yes. that is the mindset shift yeah. of like, hey, if this is such a big deal, why haven't we been doing it? Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, back to the social media point, the blurred lines here of this type of innovation is, well, if marketing and comms, you know, the Marcom team, however that's constructed, is the one who actually wants to write the copy and get the tweets out there. How is, but who's tracking the results of that? Okay, well, that is that marketing and communications? How is that? How is that brought into your CRM? How is, you know, your CRM filtering to, you know, sales? And then how is all of that sort of stuff tracked? And whose role is each of those things? Is it the head of growth? Is it, you know, like, what are the different people that are involved with all the reporting? And now Mm -hmm. you have the IT leader sitting at the intersection of every single piece of technology that the business is using, you know, listening and being the sleuth to say, well, what problems you know, do you need solved and where can I help you kind of find those and be the kind of trusted advisor, but also saying, have you thought of this? Have you seen this? Like I'm bringing new ideas to the table. Do you think that kind of the back office person, the ticket taker is is going away or is that just like shifting to the 10% of your job and the rest is going to be automated? Mm-hmm. Well, there is there is an evolution happening in not only the, the role of the leader there, but in the entire IT organization. I mean, as we as we rapidly move services and capabilities to the cloud, to other providers, the nature of the work changes. You know, some organizations are rapidly reducing the footprint of their data center, which is typically where a lot of highly skilled technology people have worked in in a in a, in a large technology organization. I, I see some emerging roles just in the in the IT organization generally. You know, project management very hot, right? Data science very hot. Business analysis. You know, vendor management. These, it's still an amazing career for a lot of people, uh, but there's a shift happening, right? We'll need engineers and we'll need programmers, but they're probably going to sit in a different location. Maybe work for a provider or work for the the cloud services, or as as we've seen over the last decade, even more, software developers can be on demand. Uh, in fact, anywhere in the world. In terms of the CIO role, I, I do see the shift. I do see that role being much less about a leader who sort of runs an IT organization primarily, just make sure people are doing what they should do and doing it really well, to being a trusted advisor. And that means that role has to change too. We've got to become good at a lot of things. We've got to, we've got to understand the future more than ever. I mean, you think about a business a few decades ago, uh, you know, you weren't thinking about, do we need to change our products and services next year? Or are we going to lose our 50% of our market within two years? No, no, the, the time horizons were much, much longer. That's not the case today. I mean, you really have to be worried about your business almost in real time. Like, are we still relevant? Are, will we be relevant next year and the year after? Um, and where's that advice and insight going to come from? So the CIO, I think, can bring a lot to the table because a lot of the change is being being driven by evolution in, in technology. And, and, and so... And you ask yourself, who in an organization today is going to be the expert on artificial intelligence? Who is the person? Now, if you're big enough and wealthy enough, you might 
hire a chief AI officer. I don't know. <laughs> I just made that up. But uh, maybe you know some examples. But otherwise, it's going to be the CIO, CTO for a while. And then we have to figure out who else needs to begin to understand more deeply these trends. I mean, the CEO has a has the ultimate responsibility to to be helping create that vision for what we can become in the context of change. But I mean, is the CEO's job if you're you know making tires, mm-hmm. if your company makes tires, you know, to, and the CEO's job is to set the vision and the course for the company for the next twenty years? Mm-hmm. Are they going to be an expert at AI? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, you kind of got to look in the mirror and be like, "Wait, who else on this table? <laughs> who else on this table?" And and the and the answer is. If somebody else is going to be the expert, like that's probably not a good thing for yeah. you. <laughs> like you probably got to do it. So, how do IT leaders learn? Like obviously, you know, you have worked in that kind of world with O'Reilly, right. but also, you know, you've created several, you know, super successful uh, online courses with LinkedIn Learning and co-authored, you know, books about the Apps Challenge Playbook. You've talked about this a lot. You've thought it about it a lot. How should IT leaders learn? And like, what are the ways that, like, what are the things that you're doing? What are the things yeah. that kind of keep you fresh and keep you cutting edge to stay up with these type of trends? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that question. I get it asked quite a lot, actually. So, so thank you for asking it again. So, uh, and of course, the way I'm doing it is changing as it should in light of everything else that continues to, to evolve as we, as we head into the future. Personally, I'm, I've got an incredible appetite for knowledge. I mean, that, that's a characteristic of who I am. So there's, the two sides are I love to consume knowledge, but I also love to share knowledge. And, and you, you cited many of the things that I do, whether it's my own podcast or a lot of the writing I do, the content I develop for videos and LinkedIn learning, do a lot of keynotes, a lot of conference work, a lot of, you know, that type of thing, because it's a gift and it's a, it's a privilege to be able to share. At times I can even sort of create my own view of the future and share that too. It's a, that's a unique privilege, right? I don't know that I, there, there's an area that I don't consume. So I, I love, love online videos, love YouTube, of course. I think that's a remarkable platform. And uh, I'm a big user of Twitter, actually. You know, yeah. th- there's lots of camps on Twitter. These people, I hate it, people don't understand it. That's fine. I actually love it. I love it from the ability to consume lots of interesting information from lots of different peoples and or, people and organizations. Yeah, it's um, absolutely. I mean, yeah. the, the whole thing about, you know, and there might be people listening who, who don't like Twitter. I, I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. as well. Uh, it's definitely the thing I app I use the most on my phone. Yeah. If you were to go back 100 years ago <laughs> and say, I could listen to or I could get daily updates on what you know, right. whatever Churchill is thinking. We had stuff like that and it was called a newspaper. And those things were, I don't think we ever realized how like constrictive they were. There were there was a writer that was being syndicated in like a third of households in America, right? It's like, that's what we have with Twitter. Now, like the downside of that is like, obviously, you know, Twitter is insane and there's like tons of crazy stuff and trolls and all that other stuff. But, yeah. you know, the fact that you can choose a group of mentors and you get to consume all their stuff. You can yep. consume their podcasts and you can follow what they think about things. And some people, you know, like like Naval Ravikant of the world that are cryptic, but good and like sharing insights and these like tweet storms and all this sort of stuff. It's so at your fingertips and all of the information is is accessible from people's minds. It doesn't 
the crowd can kind of select things that they mm-hmm. think are interesting and things that are whatever. I, I mean, I don't know. That's that's my end of, end of the rant. But I, I'm right there with you. I think it's something that like if you're not on Twitter following other people, other like insightful people, you got to do it somewhere. It doesn't have to be Twitter, but you got to do it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the phenomena we're faced with today is the abundance of content, right? Uh, it's not that there's any sort of drought. Now, having said that, I don't know that we have an abundance of really high quality content. Yeah, agreed. Right? And, and I think that's a differentiator. I think if you, if you guys, for example, are building this credible business here in Palo Alto, if you really super focus on great content, there's going to be an audience for that and it's going to make a difference. There's a lot of stuff that's not so good out there, right? So as a leader, if you want to learn something, there's never been like, there's never been more stuff, ways to learn the basics of a product or service, the basics of a technology. But the, but the science, the art and the science, I should say, about our work is we have to grapple with change that is unpredictable. Look, we know blockchain's a thing, right? Blockchain's out there. People are fascinated and, and, and it's already uh, making a difference. But does anybody know what it means two years from now or maybe five years from now? What does it mean to the operation of a city or to the autonomous vehicle movement? You know, That's where I think maybe there's a differentiator between those that are you know, good leaders and those that are great and amazing leaders is the ability to consume a vast amount of different types of content, synthesize it, and have a, a sense of where things might be trending. And you hope that among the things, the bets you make, most of them will be good because you know that some are going to be wrong. I mean, I have 30 years doing this and uh, I can list the things I got wrong, but I'm also excited about the stuff I got right. You know, going back to this theme we've had in our conversation today, I saw social media, I think before a lot of folks did uh, when I was with PwC and people thought I was crazy. They didn't know what I was talking about when I was beginning to articulate where what this could mean when you start to connect the world and have sort of a, a frictionless way to communicate and share content. I think the, that ability to consume content and make sense of the future is a 21st century skill. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there's always room on the cutting edge. I mean, like that's why we created the podcast. Like mm. we want to hear from the cutting edge, the people that are actually out there doing it and the hard decisions that they had to make. And your point is exactly right. Is like there are the moments in time where you see the change that you think is going to happen and then you have to go convince people that this is the case. <laughs> and those people are executives carrying, you know, billion dollars of of revenue and thousands of employees and all that sort of stuff. And you have to say like, hey, this change is coming. We can plan for it or not. So let, let's get into the blockchain stuff a little bit. What do you think is, does the five next five years look like of blockchain and specifically for the enterprise? Because I think that that's the thing that, you know, we, we've talked about it on this podcast with Amber Balde of the things that she did at JP Morgan and the things that she's building in her startup, which is great. But from your perspective, you know, as a city, you know, working with the city, but also kind of just reading the tea leaves. What do you what do you think blockchain enterprises is coming? Well, we're we're moving from the hype now to the practical period of, of this technology. A lot of technologies kind of die at the sort of when they peak they, in terms of expectations. There's a, a lot of organizations and people are, who are incentivized to promote something beyond its abilities to, to actually meet any of those expectations. And we had a period of that for blockchain. 
I know in my own travels and, and networking that there's still a sizable amount of people who, who are still on the fence about this. And what I'm seeing is we're, we're, it's tracking towards the mainstream now, which is the very interesting stuff where it moves from a novelty, kind of a curiosity to, you know, this can bring real value to our organization. Now, having said that, I think the technology is still rather in flux. It, I wouldn't put it in the category of mature technology yet. There's still issues with uh, with scalability. There's still a lot of different players. It hasn't sort of, the market hasn't sorted itself out yet. You know, fundamentally, we're talking about a different way to think about a database here, right? I mean, that's at the, at the heart of this. And all of us who have been in the tech industry for a few decades we're wedded to, you know, uh, either structured or unstructured databases. We uh, we understand columns and rows and 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 uh, how to query databases. So we have a particular mindset. Now we're being sort of faced with this. Here's a different way to think about this. Here's a uh, a system of of record that doesn't require trust anymore. It's effectively trustless. You can rely on the mechanism that that the 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 way in which the system works in order to give you the confidence that transactions are accurate and the participants are who they say they are. It has this notion of provenance that we never delete stuff, right? Again, as, a, as a, someone who's worked almost in every role in the technology organization, this idea that you you don't update or delete records, you just add records, again, it's it's very interesting, right? That's notionally different. And then you start to look at, well, well what's the practicality of that? Well, First of all, you, you, you potentially begin to solve a lot of, or you reduce the, the issues, the risks that are aligned with uh, traditional databases, everything from you know fraud to identity issues. And those are things worth solving right there. And you also start to reduce the friction between interfaces, right? So, so data and transactions can move much more rapidly in a confident way across the global network. You know, I think about on occasion, I have to receive or send money to an international location. I have family abroad, for example. Yep. And you know, the, you, of course, you can you can use a premium service, and there's a huge commission for that to send money. Let's say in the same day, right? But if I just want to use my bank, you know, just use a Swift network to send a thousand dollars to somebody in in Europe, we're talking a few days, and anything up to actually ten days is my ex- recent experience. That's not a twenty first century solution. And so in a, in a world in which we're not reliant on the traditional technology, which forces that delay, in other words, we use something, a distributed ledger technology to be able to do that transaction, it can almost be immediate, right? Or every 10, 15 minutes. That's game changing. If you can move money fast and, you know, of course, now go beyond money, you can move data and business rules across uh, multiple networks. I think, you know, part of your question was, where is it going to all happen? Where, where's the, where do I see the impact? In a city context, we're fascinated by this, right? One of the areas that I love is blockchain potentially for the very first time offers us a solution to online voting, right? Now, it's been experimented in a couple of countries. Zug in Switzerland, a city in, in Switzerland is one of the areas where blockchain for uh, online identity has been, been used. That's small, and, and, but it's, the results are interesting. But I can't help thinking if, if in the future we can all vote on our smartphones, on a number of issues, and know that our vote counts, and it's a, a low-risk, highly secure way of doing it. That's kind of game-changing to democracy, right? And then cities have a whole range of other repositories, everything from birth certificates to wedding certificates to real estate documents that all can be valued in an immutable database, right? 
finance sector, of course, you talked about that. I loved that interview, by the way, with uh, that lady from, from Chase. But go across the, the, any, anybody in the supply chain. I'm, I mean, aren't most businesses in the supply chain? I sound like perhaps I think this is going to be big and, and it's going to happen real, you know, definitely and, and very fast. Even baked into everything I've shared with you right now, there's a level of uncertainty. But I think it's worth, if you're listening and you're kind of on the fence, I think it's worth experimenting. I think you should f- identify at least one experiment in your business. Even if you're far displaced from you know, the financial sector, for example, try something. Try it. Just begin to learn about it and try it because I think there's enough evidence to suggest this is trending in the right direction. When we talked to Frederick about this idea, he was saying that one of the bets that he, they didn't make was on blockchain. And he was like, we just weren't ready and the market wasn't ready. And then two years later, now we've made a bunch of bets. And it's like that sort of thing, right? The market wasn't quite there you know, two years ago where they felt comfortable. But now he's like, now we're, we're starting to, to make our decisions. We have the information now. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of your call to action there is like, start learning about it and figuring out where the places where there might be an experiment and then you know start to run one because i think i think everyone just looks at the the money side of things but you know pii ramifications of this especially for the city government is so huge that like the the voting aspect you're talking about how much organizational effort do we spend in america to get people to go vote. Mm-hmm. We have campaigns, we have PSAs, we have hashtags, we have all this stuff, everybody's spinning up. And it's like everything we do in our life can be done on a smartphone, except for voting. Yeah. <laughs> except we can have, we have fingerprint <laughs> technology on our phones. We have facial recognition software. Like the technology is all there. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why we can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. I think we have to, because in reality, voting is the thing that can have the, or absence of voting, can have the biggest impact on your life, your family, your friends. It really makes a difference here now in the 21st century. We Americans aren't voting. We, we have our, I don't know when this podcast will be played. We might be before or after the midterms. Um, it should be before. If it's before, vote, 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 vote. If there's anything that I can, anything that resonates with your listeners, it's my desire for every American who is eligible to vote, to vote, no matter what your party or, or issues are. I'm not, I'm completely not indicating any particular angle. I'm saying simply the act of voting, which is such a privilege and it's it's so easy to do today. Now, it'll be easier if it's electronic, clearly, but but like mailing in a vote or, you know, showing up on, on, on the voting day, I would seriously encourage everybody to do that. A hundred million Americans didn't vote in 2016. 100 million people it's wild Um, but but this is one of the things that it's like this is the actual solution like or a a possible solution right the solution what we've seen is like let's look at our track record and it's like we've created too many barriers to entry to this thing we gotta remove barriers to entry so that people can vote and like you know you might say that people or whatever, but ultimately that doesn't matter. If you're running a business, it doesn't matter if your customers are tired or lazy or can't just have the means to do something. You need to figure out a way to serve them. That's mm-hmm. what we need to do is serve the citizens of the United States. That's right. And this, you know, this is a global podcast. We have tons of, I think half of our listeners are, are not in the US, but so this applies to any country. But sure. yeah, that's what we do in business. We remove barriers to entry. We remove friction so that we can create a frictionless experience. That's what every single CIO is trying to do. So therefore we should probably do it with the most important like human liberty, which is like, you know, the ability to vote. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit towards your responsibilities at the city of Palo Alto. What does the CIO of a city do? It still is a surprise to me. Sometimes I'll be facilitating a workshop or a talk and I'm a few minutes in and somebody puts up their hand and says, wait, a city has a CIO? You know, So it, it, it still is a unusual concept for a lot of people. Um, I have to give credit to President Obama who uh, appointed the first federal CIO and then had a great influence on the on the federal agencies who then hired CIOs, the states hired CIOs, and that began to trickle down. Uh, it was a recognition that just like in the private sector where technology has moved from the periphery into the center of the action, technology was moving from the outside of government life into the center of government life. And that if we were had any chance of solving these major, appear to be intractable issues in our in our society, we're going to have to use technology and we're going to have to use innovative technology to do that. And you have to have a, a leader who's who's ready to champion uh, that and uh, sit with the executive team like we've talked we talked about earlier and run a, an innovative IT organization to deliver on on those commitments. So my day, my world is is a little bit it's divided between those day-to-day like IT leadership things you have to do. Things have to work every day. When people come into work in the morning, stuff has to work. You know, the Palo, city of Palo Alto, we've run a full utilities. So we're, we have a gas, electric, water, wastewater. We even have commercial fiber internet service. And, and so we have over 300 computer systems. And we're a small city. So there may be a, a city or an organization listening saying, well, that's nothing, right? But we're just a, I mean, we're a small Northern California town, although a, an important one and an influential one in the world. We're still a small town, you know, less than 100,000 people live here. Although a lot of people come here to work every day. So we, we get up to about 130, 140,000 people every day. And we have a big university here, which drives a lot of traffic as well, uh, Stanford University. So a lot of my work is to make sure it all works. If you don't do that as an IT leader, that, that's your bread and butter. You're, you're not going to get credibility. You're not going to be given the opportunity to, uh, to innovate and to, to be the trusted advisor that you want to be. I think we all want to be that the functioning of your you know your organization and and delivery of services is is primary it's it's appropriate that as you're saying that the city of Palo Alto garbage truck just <laughs> just drove by um, and we might need to get some of that fiber uh, wired over to the mission studios here <laughs> that's right yeah just um, more evidence that this is real this is all real right we're here in a garage in Palo Alto for sure but of course if all i was doing was that i don't think we'd be living up to both the opportunities we have plus the responsibility I think we have here in the in the heart of Silicon Valley. So a proportion of my work, and I, I, I can't really put a percentage on it, you know, but some decent chunk of it is is trying to help our leaders not only across the different departments we have, but also our elected leaders understand where thing, things are trending. You know, what does the emergence of self-driving vehicles mean to cities? You know, this is an important question, right? They're coming. And by the way, self-driving vehicles are here. In many, in many cities, there, there are already a fleet of public transport vehicles, which are, which are autonomous. Many people still think this is, you know, years out. And I'm telling people, no, no, this is happening right now. But there's going to be a larger transition in terms of your, your, just your individual ownership of a car and how you might then use on-demand autonomous vehicles in the future. That's going to have great impact on, on cities, on how you design a city, and the things you have to support, the new technology you have to deploy. 
And, and so part of my role has to be to educate on that, to be a thought leader, to develop content and share content with all those people, plus our community. Um, but people are interested in what we're doing here too. You know, the, the world is interested in Palo Alto. And I've learned this personally now for the last few years. So I am a very visible leader and uh, I'm out there being a champion for quality of life, for incredible communities uh, as we head into sort of the unpredictability of the, the fourth industrial revolution. So that, that's, that's part of my work too. And I think a lot of CIOs in cities, and I have a lot of friends across California and in fact, across the nation and the world who are IT leaders in a city context. And gradually we're seeing them move from being that back office operator to managing that well, but also beginning to be the innovator in their organization and, and being a leader around the, and the possible uses of tech. So how do you think cities can drive innovation? Like how, and like, you know, what does this look like? Is it hackathons? Is it reacting to what's happening from the businesses around them? Is it, you know, just finding and outsourcing to vendors? Like what does innovation look like for a city? It's multidimensional, by the way. There's lots of things we can do. And so I'm reminded of the expression, you know, a particular idea that years ago, people thought of government service like a vending machine, right? You pay a tax, which is like your dollar. You stick in the dollar and you get a $1 worth of service back. And well, that hasn't been the case in a long time, right? The overhead of delivering government services is, is huge now. And so you're, you're putting in your dollar and who knows how much you're getting back in terms of services. The only way we're going to deliver state-of-the-art, game-changing change is through partnerships. And it means working with you know your traditional partners, working directly with your community, working with the private sector, with academia, with other government agencies, both local, state, and federal. Um, this applies all over the world. This is not a uniquely American thing. So we, we have to collaborate more than ever. IT leaders in a, in a government context have to be collaborators. It's probably fair to say that in the private sector too. I mean, you, you can't be an island anymore. You know, the best companies are partnering. The best companies are creating magical, productive partnerships so they can deliver even more and better services to their consumers. Same thing in, in government. So the partnership model has to be top of mind, I think, for, for getting stuff done. And, that, and if cities do that well and they have, you know, they're the center of the mechanics of a city, so we can be amazing conveners. We can be great facilitators. You know, often what I do as a CIO for Palo Alto is I'm connecting people. I'm connecting ideas. I don't always have to be involved. I'm like, hey, you know, I saw this person over here with this problem, and then I saw over here this person with this solution, and I connect them. I'm saying, hey, connect, make magic, make, make wonderful things happen. There's that piece of it. Also, the platform of a city is incredible to innovate in. The idea that most cities have electricity going to their lamps, their light posts, means you can they become incredible places for experimenting with sensors, all types of sensors. Because you, you, you got the electricity, right? And they're already distributed across a city context. And then you can use something like a very low bandwidth or narrowband communication to send data into the cloud. So you can do everything from you know, traffic management to uh, sensors for air quality and even here in the U.S., we're interested if there's a gunshot where, where, and we're doing our you know, discovery later on. Where did the gunshot come from? And you can do that with uh, audio sensors. It's exciting if you're an innovator to be able to have the canvas of a, of a city. So that's another thing that we can, we can offer up. We do it in a managed you know, way. 
sometimes you want to say, hey, we'll just do it in this block. I think the last thing I would share on this important question is we have to create the economic conditions for success, right? Many cities that want to attract sort of fourth industrial revolution industry, they will create a, an area that is has tax benefits, right? Or incentives to provide people to, to move into uh, developing areas of the community so so that, the, you know, they bring jobs to the uh, less prosperous side of a community. So the, the economics are important. Fortunately, here in Silicon Valley, we, we got it just about right. In fact, I think it's sometimes out of control and we have we have lifestyle problems in terms of transportation and, and a housing crisis that is the product of our success. But maybe maybe those are a few examples that are useful. That's great. I mean, that's mind-blowing stuff. I, I think I had not thought of a street lamp as an opportunity to to track gunshots before, but I think that that's, it's a really, it's a salient point because the things that end up being a burden can often, like you said, create a platform for change. What are some of those other things? Like, So, so we sat down with in our upcoming podcast, Future Cities, my producer always gets mad when I when I plug the when other shows. You got to do it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's going to be really exciting. But we talked to the CEO of Proterra, Ryan Popple, about like electric buses, and you're yeah. like, you, you look at these sort of things, and you're like, it is insane that we have, as a society buy, but our tax dollars buy oil futures. Like that's what we're doing. We're buying oil futures when we have a fleet of diesel buses. When electric buses can connect to the grid in a way that is cheaper and better for the environment, right? Like things like that. But I think that, you know, technology has to catch up. So like, what are the things that we're waiting? Like, what are you waiting on right now for technology to catch up and just be like, if we could just get like fibers one, that's like, for me, I'm like, gosh, can we just please get there so much faster? Like I live in Oakland and I have horrible cell phone reception yeah. and I have horrible internet and there's no, there's no option, there's no option to get faster internet. What are some of those things that you see that you're kind of waiting on from a technology perspective? <laughs> well, I will, I will say this at the beginning of my answer is getting to where we want to get to is not just about technology. It is also about the ability for people to accept change at the rate in which they're comfortable. It has to be relative to culture and economics too, right? Sometimes communities can't afford to do certain things. Uh, and, not because they have no money, but because they have other priorities, right? So there's a whole range of other things that I don't want to be uh, leave out of my answer. I just want to kind of start it with that. I do think connectivity is a, is a, is a key answer, and, and you kind of got there already in the question. We need just generally better connectivity. I'm not going to say how we, where my sort of preference is, because I, I don't. I would just say this: it's probably some hybrid of fixed and wireless. So I'd, I'd uh, be open-minded as to where things are trending. There's a there's a significant momentum around the emergence of 5G, although we do have to balance the, the hype versus the reality. And although I can't believe it, there's already talk on 6G. So the connectivity model that we have today is, is going to be radically shifted here in, in, in just a few years. So that's coming. What form it takes in individual communities is, is going to reveal itself in, in time. Uh, I also think I, uh, that we need to more rapidly pursue decarbonization you know, we, we are still around the world highly reliant on carbon-based energy in particular. And so there are incredible communities doing amazing things to adopt a whole range of non-carbon methods, everything from solar to wind to geothermal and beyond. 
So to me, that can't happen fast enough. Let's let's get there because it's such a such a great thing. And by the way, the jobs in non-carbon energy are high-paying, high-qualified, great jobs. Oh, so, absolutely. So you know, I'm an advocate for great jobs for all Americans, and then clearly for communities all over the world. So and the lastly, because this could be a long list, but but in the interest of our time we have together, autonomous vehicles. I think we will look back a few decades from now and say probably our children, maybe our grandchildren will say, humans drove cars like at 70 miles per hour around each other with no barriers or, you know, and, and people could be sleepy or taking medicine or drunk. We're all so comfortable with that, although 1.4 million people die in car accidents every year. Yeah, 94% are preventable. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in a, in a world in which uh, autonomous vehicles drive very safely, we start to potentially resolve some congestion issues. We don't need massive parking lots because the assumption a little bit is that self-driving cars don't need to park all the time. I think that's game-changing. It allows us to think about cities differently. You could, you could imagine a city that begins to convert some of its roads into green space. So, you know, the street outside your house here becomes a field, maybe with a little stream going through it. We get to think differently, potentially. My conclusion, based on where we're at right now, as we approach the end of 2018, is we're underestimating the potential positives of self-driving vehicles and the extent to which they will be game changers in our cities. The one thing that we know is that young people adopt technology at a fast rate. One of the interns we had at the mission was like, I never want to own a car. Why would I want to? Like, it was like, I was I was dumb. Like, why, why would I need a car? Right. And he's <laughs> 17 or 18. Okay, before we get out of here, we're going to do the lightning round. Okay. Fast and easy questions, not unlike the lighting platform by Salesforce. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? I love uh, Instagram. Favorite time-saving tool? Is my notepad and pen. <laughs> I, I, I create to-do lists. I can't uh, overstate the value of to-do lists. Love it. Favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? Well, I, I don't know if that's my... My favorite, but I'm fascinated by it, is this type forward in Gmail. So I'm, yeah, I'm. Typing. I know it's crazy. <laughs> We've got that answer a bunch recently because it just launched, and all of us are sitting here like, "Whoa, wait, what? Press tab, what?" Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. Favorite sports team or otherwise? I should say the Irish soccer team. Oh, there you I go. really should the national Irish soccer team. But I have to say, my favorite thing is tennis, and I think uh, Roger Federer is a classic. He's a, he's a genius of tennis favorite podcast or recent book that you've checked out recently? Well, I love uh, IT Visionaries oh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate it. Also, uh, I love drinking wine, talking tech, which yeah, is my own. That's one of my favorites. Um, yeah. Well, I love, you know, I listen to Star Talk. I oh, love yeah. that podcast. I like uh, Freakonomics. I like, I can't think of the guy's name uh, right now. He does Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. Oh, Alec Baldwin? Alec Baldwin's podcast is incredible. I can't remember the name of it, but you can Google it. It's pretty cool. And then my favorite book, the book I keep coming back to and I keep referencing when I'm teaching is The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly. Very cool. I've not checked that out. We'll, we'll throw that in the show notes. Favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area? I like Half Moon Bay. Last question. Best advice for a first time CIO? You know, I've, I've written about that. I have a couple of pieces I've written about sort of the first 100 days of being a CIO. Oh, we got to link that up. We'll put, yeah. it, put that in the newsletter. Okay, cool. Thank you. And I'm trying to think of the advice I gave in there. You know, first of all, listen a lot. Sounds obvious, but don't be taking some radical action in your first few weeks. Listen to people. 
the stuff that's going on won't be obvious to you in the first few months of your job because people are going to be on their good behavior stuff will be hidden so so don't be taking big action keep your ears open form relationships relationships really really matter grab coffee with your colleague you know take have a lunch spend time with them so relationship building and then third is fix a few things i really mean that like not the big things don't do a major upgrade in the first 30 days or 60 days Fix a few things that have been bothering people because that shows, first of all, you're action-oriented. It shows that you are a doer. Not only do you take action, but you get stuff done. And you will start to build credibility because people will view you as a person who is not just a can talk well or you know has executive presence, but you actually you can change the game by making decisions and executing on them. But I'm really saying here, not big ones. I'm saying, so pick a series of small things that are visible and important and, and you can get achieved. And, and I think that'll, those small tips there will help you a lot in the first few months of your new career. Awesome. That's it for Lighting Round. Thanks again to Salesforce, leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. Salesforce, building apps is everyone's business. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. Thanks so much for hanging out. I've loved it. This is awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely have you back soon. This was great. All the best to you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps.